to Psalm 42. If you remember the last time we were together in the Psalms, we, we completed the first book of Psalms up to Psalm 41. And uh, if you remember that the Psalms are divided into five books, five divisions, and that many people see the divisions of the Psalms as the first five books of the Bible. So we finished the Genesis section of Psalms. Now we start the Exodus section of Psalms. So Psalm 42. And this section speaks of ruin and redemption. Many times referring to the nation of Israel, but as always in the Psalms, no matter what the original intent was, no matter what the historical events surrounding the Psalms, there's always an individual personal application to our lives in the 21st century. You know, how many times we experience times of distress and cry out to the Lord for deliverance and redemption. And so we see in this section of Psalms, many times the nation crying out to the Lord in their distress and and praying for redemption. So Psalm 42, um, it says uh, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Now this can either be written, and there's, there's 12 psalms actually that are given um, um, the sons of Korah in the title. So we're not sure if they're actually written by the sons of Korah or they're written by David for the sons of Korah. And it's widely accepted that these sons of Korah are descendants of Korah in the book of Numbers. And if you remember that story where the earth opened up and swallowed uh, all of those, all of those people, the sons of Korah, um, they separated themselves from the deeds of their father, so they weren't destroyed at that time. And how appropriate it is that God can use an event like that, and He gave them then a ministry. They became musicians. They became psalmists and an opportunity for God to work in the lives of people even after such a harsh and and destructive event as we read about in Numbers 16. So if you want to go see the context, you can go back and and do that study. So they wrote or performed 12 psalms. And so we here now we get to this first one, and it says uh, from verses 1 through 5, To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for the water brooks, So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. In verse 1, it says, 
As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. You know, the author here is expressing his longing for that intimacy with God to be restored. It's a, it's a longing because it's something he had experienced at one time that is no longer there. And why is that? What causes that relationship to be broken? Well, it's, it's sin. Sin separates us from God. So the separation that we have, that, that our intimacy with God has bro- been broken, should make us long for Him, should make us thirst for Him. And we don't certainly want to sin so that we have that sense of longing, but when we are separated from Him by our sin, we want to, we want to feel that longing for God so that we can go back to Him. And none of us, if we've been believers for any length of time, have gone through any period of time without that experiencing that separation. And the deprivation of that relationship should, should cause us to renew our desire to be in His presence. And that's what the psalmist is expressing here. In verse 2, he's speaking probably of corporate worship. He says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Spiritual thirst. You know, we were speaking before uh, the service about physical thirst, you know, and, and how that's something that our bodies give us to tell us that we are in need of water. That spiritual thirst is a good thing. It's something that's in our souls that cause us to long for that relationship with God again. You know, water is the most important element to the body. Certainly, our relationship with God is the most important thing to our souls, to our spirits. And it says in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you hunger after the things of God, if you thirst after that relationship with God, He will fill you. He will provide, He will supply your needs if you hunger after Him. And then in verse 4, it says, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. So now here, again, longing for that, that time together with other believers. He's saying, I used to do that. I used to go to church. I used to go with others to the house of God and lift my voice in praise. And he's talking here now about a time when he no longer does that and he's longing for that. You know, if you've been away from fellowship for any length of time, you should start to feel something in your heart, in your soul, that, that's just uh, that's a longing, a yearning to get back together with other believers. And, and I know that even if I miss a week, I feel disconnected from the, from the people of God. And, you know, you know church is, is wonderful because of the people, because of the relationships. 
the connection that we have with one another. And, and we're social beings. We, you know, we should want, we should desire that. And the Bible says that we shouldn't forsake you know, getting together in times of, of fellowship and, and un, sitting under the Word. And we also gain help for our, our troubles in the midst of other believers because we can encourage one another. We can lift each other up in prayer. And that's something that we should long for. And that's what the, the psalmist is expressing here. You know, I know sometimes we stay away from church because there's shame, there's sin in our life. Or sometimes people stay away from, from the fellowship because there's, they're really going, undergoing a lot of trials. And those are the times that we need to be together with other believers. So I think that, you know, that what this psalm is, is telling us is that what we normally or naturally would think is to separate ourselves from, from the people of God when we're going through some difficulties. We need to set that aside and we need to turn it around. We need to come together with other believers when we're going through difficulties or, or troubles. And then in verse 5, it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Here, the psalmist is actually starting to question himself. It's probably even as much as of, of a rebuke because he's distrusting God. He knows God is working in his life, and yet he doesn't have 100% faith and trust in him. He says, why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted within me? In me? He's questioning his own soul because there's, there's distress there in his soul, and he knows there shouldn't be. And then he says, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. Hope should be followed by praise. If we understand God's relationship with us, you know, we have times of trials and times of troubles, and then we have that hope, but the hope is a knowledge that God is always there. And because he is, because he never leaves us or forsakes us, because he's always faithful, then we should, should follow that hope by praise. And, and, and we know, we know that his help will be there. And I like the transparency of the psalmist who admits his doubt. You know, many times we've, we've talked about throughout the psalms how, you know, their hearts are laid bare before us. We know what they're thinking deep within their hearts and souls. And I, and I love that about the psalms because they show us what we feel inside ourselves. He is doubting God. And how many times also we tend to doubt God. But the distress that he's feeling is also useful. It's useful because it should lead us back to God. It says in Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the psalmist here also knows that his help comes from God. And that's something that is giving him hope even in the midst of troubles. So then in verses 6 through 11, it says, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. 
Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mazar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So we see that line repeated again there in verse 11. But in verse 6, it says, O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mazar. And I love this about this psalm and many others, that in the midst of his dryness, He's remembering God's faithfulness. He's contrasting that dryness, dryness of his sorrow and his distress with the quenching of the Jordan River, you know, the headwaters that flooded the land in that region. And this is how God ministers to our needs. You know, when we're at our most difficult time, when we're dry in our relationship with him, we just call out to him and he'll quench that thirst. But we also need to remember, and that's what the psalmist does here. He brings to remembrance the fact that God is always faithful. He makes a determined remembrance of God and his thirst for that relationship then is quenched. And in verse 7, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. So again, that contrast, first he's speaking of, of dryness and spiritual thirst, and now we're talking about floodwaters. Your waterfalls, your waves and billows have gone over me. How God ministers in such awesome ways, exactly where we need it. You know, when we're dry, he's not just going to send us a drop, he's going to just flood us with with what we need with quenching. If we're, whatever we're going through, God knows exactly what is needed to minister to that particular need that we're going through. I love that about him because it's an intimate relationship. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of answer to our problems. He knows us personally. He knows us intimately. He knows what we're going through and, there, and therefore, he ministers exactly how it's needed for us. In verse 8, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So we can come boldly before the Lord, day or night. And that should cause us to praise him. Imagine the God of all creation. We have access unlimited access to. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the comforter. And he's the object of our worship and the deliverer of us out of all troubles. 
We should praise Him and we should come boldly before Him as the, as the Scriptures say. Day or night, we have access. Then in verses 9 and 10, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of, my, of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? See, now we see the psalmist, he's sort of being tossed to and fro by his circumstances. You know, and, and we go through the same thing. You know, at one, one point we're just praising God, we're, we're just casting our cares upon Him, we're going to Him day and night in prayer, and then sometimes there's just there's so much going on in our life that we just were tossed by our circumstances. And the doubt and the questioning of God starts to come in. You know, it's like a child who constantly doubts his parents' desire or ability to protect him or care for him. You know, I'm sure God thinks it's strange that we get tossed to and fro, first in faithfulness, then in doubt. And as a parent, I'm sure we find it strange if our kids would suddenly not trust us or, or think that we don't have the best for them. But prayerfully, hopefully, we always come back to the knowledge of our Heavenly Father and how, he, how much He loves us. And then in verse 11, a repeat of verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. And now, hopefully, and maybe I'm reading into it, maybe this is not as much a rebuke as it was the first time, but maybe just an admission by the psalmist that his soul doesn't need to sorrow because he has hope in God. And so maybe we're starting to see a growth in, in the psalmist's relationship. And then we're going to go right into Psalm 43 because for many people, they think that these psalms were either one psalm at one time or at least they should be connected one with the other. So... It's a prayer to God in time of trouble. So it's sort of, we, we see it as maybe a prelude to Psalm 42. There's no author identified. There's no title. So it just sort of flows right in. And the theme seems to run from the doubt that we see in Psalm 42 to seeking God's intervention in Psalm 43 and encouragement and then we see that same verse that we saw in verses in 5 and 11 of Psalm 42. We see it repeated again in Psalm 43. But we can also see that it, it records spiritual progress that the psalmist is making. So in verse 1, it says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. The psalmist here is using legal terms to describe his predicament and how God will argue his case. He recognizes the ungodliness of unbelievers around him, and he also recognizes the righteousness of God. So, as believers, we can ask for God to intervene for us in the midst of a sinful world. But the psalmist here is not just asking God 
to be his defense attorney, but also his divine judge. And that's difficult. We can ask God to stand up for us. We can ask God to vindicate us, to plead our case. But can we also ask him to be our judge? Now, the word vindicate here reflects a sense that he is to be proven correct. And I think about it in this way. You know, there are probably some defense attorneys who, deep down, they know that their client is guilty. But they're going to defend them anyway, because that's what they're supposed to do. They're, they're paid to, to defend them, no matter what. But you see, this word vindicate speaks of one who actually believes in the innocence of the defendant. If God truly sees us as righteous, but how can he do that? We're sinners. Well, he sees us through the prism of his son. See, if we've received Jesus as our savior, then we are declared righteous in God's eyes. So God not only can be our defense attorney, he can also be our righteous judge, and he can also see us as innocent. And how awesome is that? Verse 2 says, For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And here is the reason for pleading our case before God. For you are the God of my strength, it says. God is our strength. Our strength not only comes from God, but our strength is in God. Therefore, we can cast ourselves upon him and not get weighed down by our troubles and even cast our sin upon him in repentance and not get weighed down by guilt. And then in verse 3, it says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Lead, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. God's light and God's truth. That's what we want to lead us in this life. God's light and God's truth. His presence represented in light and truth. His light illuminates our way so we can follow his will for our lives. And then his truth reveals his character and gives us confidence in his ability to be faithful in all circumstances. And where do we find the light and the truth of God? In the scriptures. It says in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And in John 17, it says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So light and truth are manifested in the Bible, in his scriptures. So as we dive in, as we study his word, as we sit under the teaching, his light, the light of his word will illuminate our way. And the truth of his word will cause us to see his faithfulness in, in, in leading us and desiring that relationship with us. And then we see how God leads us into his presence. It says in verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, 
to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O my God, my God. So again, in his presence, our joy is exceeding, and then that causes us to praise him. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him with the, uh, the help of my countenance and my God. So again, that verse is repeated, and it has those three elements to it, hope, praise, and help. We hope in the Lord, we praise him for his faithfulness, and then we trust and believe that he'll help us in the midst of our circumstances, whatever we're going through. So prayerfully, as we go through those things, and as the psalmist went from Psalm 42 to 43, we see that growth in the faith and the trust that we put in, in the Lord. On to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, it's a difficult psalm because this psalm teaches us that even though we're children of God, that we're going to suffer. We're going to endure hardship. But God uses those things in our life in order to, for us to gain wisdom and for us to grow in our relationship with Him. And I know that most of us know that. Most of us who have heard that before, that God uses those difficulties, those trials in your life to help grow you and your relationship with Him. But how many times do we really need to be reminded that our struggles are not in vain, that God uses them for His glory and for our growth? So the psalmist paints a picture here of the sufferings of the nation Israel during their various times of captivity or attacks from their, from their neighbors. But it also applies to the affliction of the early church, how so many times that early church went under such persecution from, from people, from unbelievers, from the neighbors or the nations around them. And I think also, in a prophetic way, it applies to the affliction that Believers undergo even to this day. How many times that maybe you or I are persecuted because of our faith? And certainly not like it was in the first century, the early church, but still sometimes we're mocked or ridiculed because of our faith in God. It's a lament psalm that takes us from a collective cry to individual mourning, and I think sometimes we go through those same things. We feel like the whole church is just being attacked, whether it's in the media or by certain uh, politicians or uh, uh, talk show hosts. We see the church as a whole being attacked, and it should, it should, it should bother us. It should, it, should, it should make us hurt inside. But also, there's that times of individual persecution, when we're personally being attacked. And although many of the psalms are psalms of thanksgiving and of praise, this one points to the trials of those who believe in God. And for us, I think it's good that we have that perspective, 
That although there are great privileges, awesome things that come along with our relationship with God, there are also hardships that come. And we need to have that, that balance in how we see our relationship with God. So, so uh, we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. We see that same title. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand and the light of your countenance because you favored them. So in verse 1, we see how the account of God's faithfulness and how it was passed from generation to generation, passed down those stories of God's faithfulness. It says, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days. This is a legacy that we should be passing on to our children or our grandchildren or certainly opportunities for us to retell our experience of, of God's grace, Him working and His faithfulness in our lives and recall those days, especially when we're going through difficulties. And I love how God's, all of God's works in general are a culmination of individual works. So God can be praised for his wondrous works and his deeds to all the nations. But individually, what has he done in your life, in my life? What have you seen that you can point to that show God's faithfulness and his love for you? Because all of those individual things that you can point to just add to the, the group of, of, of works in general that God has done throughout time. In particular, verses 2 and 3, God drove out the inhabitants of Canaan in order to plant the nation of Israel. And all of the victories that Israel had over their enemies were a work of God, not of themselves. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that. We see God's mighty hand gaining victory for his people. And the psalmist here reminds us that it's not by the hand of men, but it's by the hand of God that, gain, that victory is, is obtained. And actually that anything in our life is given. It's not by our hand. It's by God's grace that we have anything. And then in verses 4 through 8, says, You are my king, O God, Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Selah. Giving God the glory for the victory in our life. That's what we get from these verses. Give him all of the glory and all the praise. It's not our victory, it's his. And it's mentioned here in military terms. 
you know, applying those victories in, in day-to-day circumstances, each and every day, those little battles that we see God's hand in our lives just winning, being victorious for us. And then he speaks in governmental terms as the king providing peace and order, providing righteous judgment, advocating for his people, providing protection from, from all adversaries. So we see those aspects of the Lord working in our lives and in the lives of the psalmist. Verses 6 and 7, we don't take credit, we can't take credit for what the Lord has done. For it's by his hand. Not my bow, it says in verse 6, or my sword. They don't save us. You have saved us. And we shouldn't boast in anything, in anyone. We certainly shouldn't boast in ourselves. Our pride should not be in our own, our own abilities or even in another person. Because when we do that, we take the glory away from God. And we want, we want to give God all the glory. It says in Isaiah 10, verse 15, Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt himself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up? Or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood? So all of those things, the axe, the saw, the rod, or the staff, they couldn't do anything on their own. But the glory goes to the one who uses those things. We are only instruments in God's hand, tools in God's hand. We couldn't do anything on our own. He uses us to do his work in this, in this world. And he needs to get all the glory. So the prophet Isaiah here is speaking against the king of Assyria who gave himself the honor for the military victory, for the strength of his army. But the real honor must go to the Lord. Then in verses 9 through 16, it says, But you have cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with our, with our armies. You, have, you make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of, the, because of the enemy and the avenger. Now these verses are shifting from boasting in the Lord for victory to blaming him for defeat. And you see how the psalmist here is being tossed between different emotions. We need to be careful, though, that we don't think God has forsaken us just because we're going through difficult times. It says in Hebrews 13, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you 
or forsake you. God doesn't leave us just because we're in the midst of difficulties. And our affliction, even though it's great at times, it's not because God has cast us off. And we shouldn't be ashamed to be called children of God if we're going through difficulties. Actually, how we respond to those difficulties show the world that we still trust in Him. You know, if we start to crumple under trials, people will start to think, where is your God? Why aren't you trusting in Him? And it will, be, it will actually bring shame to Him. But if we deal with those things that we're going through, if we continue to show trust in Him, it'll actually honor God. Then in verses 17 through 22, it says, All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 17 and 18, no matter what we're going through, we need to remain faithful to God. Why? Well, for one reason, we have nowhere else to go. You know, I remember in, in the Gospel of John where his disciples were, were confused and it was a very difficult time in, in John 6. And Jesus says to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where do we go? Where do we look? When we're going through difficulties, are we going to call upon some foreign God? Or are we going to put our faith and trust in the one true God who knows us and loves us and wants the best for us, even if we're going through a difficult time? God knows our hearts in verse 20 and 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? He knows our hearts. So even if we could forget him in the midst of what we're going through, God knows. We can't hide our heart from him. So it's not like we're going to sneak away to some foreign God or, or, just, or just distrust in God and he won't know. He knows. Then it says in verse 22, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Sometimes we suffer because we're close to God. Sometimes we suffer because of our relationship with God. And it's even in the New Testament, it's mentioned a few times, uh, Peter speaks about suffering for the things of God. And that it's a good thing. In, in Romans 8, Paul refers to this particular verse. He says in verse 35 and 36, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness 
or peril or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You see, nothing can separate us from God, no matter what we're going through. And we need, for his sake, we need to endure the suffering that we're going through. It's for his sake. Then in verses 23 through 26, it says, Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise! Do not cast us off forever. How many times do we think God's sleeping when we're going through something? God, wake up! Wake up! Don't you see what we're going through? I think of the disciples on the boat when Jesus is sleeping in the back. Wake up, Lord! Don't you know? Sometimes we, we think the same thing. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. So this is similar to the verse in verse 9 where verse 9 was a complaint that the Lord had cast them off. When verse 23 is more of a prayer for God not to cast them off. And again, sometimes we think he's sleeping when we're going through troubles, but, he, but he's not. He'll redeem us for his sake. And then in verses 24 through 26, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground, arise for our help and redeem us. So the psalmist here is pleading for mercy. He sounds like he's in a real bad way. The expressive and descriptive language just shows us the depth of his affliction. You can't get any lower than the dust of the earth. You can't get any lower than the ground. And he's there. He's, he's just as low as you can get. But God redeems his people in order to glorify himself. He redeems his people for his sake, for his mercy's sake. And he wants to show us his grace. No matter how low we feel, no matter how many troubles we're going through, know that God wants to redeem us, to deliver us from those things. He desires to. So then he gets the glory and we can tell others about how he's working in our lives and not be stuck in those times of distress. So God uses those things in our life to draw us back to him, to send us to our knees in prayer, to give us opportunities to witness to others how God has redeemed us through those things, delivered us out of those troubles. All of the ways that God uses the circumstances in our life that we shouldn't, we shouldn't feel that he's forsaken us in those things. So, just so we don't rush through Psalm 45, I'll save it to the next time we get together. This, Psalm 45 is a beautiful psalm. Just to give you a little teaser, it's a psalm that is a, it's a wedding song, it's a love song, and it actually represents um, God's relationship with us as the bride and the groom. So we get to, we get to see that, and we'll, we'll uh, catch up on that the next time we study the Psalms. But again, we see God just 
being there in the midst of whatever we're going through. And for us, we see the, we see the psalmist going through the same things that we go through, having times of doubt and times of distress, and, 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 and yet always knowing that God will, will get him out of his troubles, will certainly redeem him from those things, and that God is always faithful. That's something we, we never, ever want to forget. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. And Lord, may we just apply these things to our life, Lord, as we're, we're bound to be in times of...